0: Welcome to the Booktopia Podcast. I'm Sarah McDooling. I'm here with my co-worker Sharnu Prasad. We are both of us, somewhat giddy with glee, (laughs) to be talking today with Margaret Rogerson.
1: Hi, Margaret. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, we are delighted. Um, Now, I think we're probably going to want to talk about everything you've ever written, but you are particularly (laughs) here today to be Um, talking about your upcoming book, Vespertine. For all the people listening, could you just tell them a little bit about the book and what they can expect?
1: Yes, so my elevator pitch for Vespertine is that it's about a girl training to be a nun who awakens an ancient spirit bound to a saint's relic and wields its power to battle the undead. Um, I sort of jokingly describe it as medieval venom with a nun and a ghost. It's, I think, a little bit darker than my previous books, if, if you're familiar with them, but um, nevertheless is ultimately, I would say, light and hopeful in tone.
2: Absolutely, and I think that's one of the things that I loved most um, about the book, is that you, you look at the cover and you think, oh, okay, I think I know what I'm in for here, and then you open it up, and the main character, Artemisia's voice, is so fresh and wonderful, And then the uh, developing relationship that she has with other characters um, in the book is there's just this amazing lightness and and humor, even though they're going through some really uh, traumatic and, you know, serious, um, serious things in the book. So um, I loved it a lot. And um, I thank you for doing that, because it's been a while since I'd read some YA fantasy. And um, it just was it was just so refreshing to, to read something that made me laugh and just go yeah <laughs> 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 while I was reading I was like you go <laughs> <Juice>. <laughs> I was messaging Sarah as I was reading it going oh this is the one you told me to read oh my god I'm so glad I'm reading it today it's just exactly what I needed in the middle of our uh interminably long lockdown <laughs> that we're having oh <laughs> yeah that makes it
1: was me so happy joy. <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, yeah I feel thinking- oh
0: no go ahead Speaking of elevator pitches, though, I think I somewhere online heard you describe it as um, Joan of Arc meets Venom with a bit of Dark Souls.
1: And oh, I, yes, also that. that.
0: That was the best thing I'd ever heard. So that was, that was my first um, knowledge that you had a new book coming was that elevator pitch and I nearly passed out. I was like, that sounds like the best <laughs> thing I've ever heard. And having read it. I would also, I'm inclined to throw Ghostbusters in the mix just because of the extraordinarily like detailed um, hierarchy of ghosts that you have created for this world. Um. And,
2: and the and the camaraderie that you end up with uh, of the ghost fighting kind of band of people mm-hmm. where some of them do the fighting and some of them do the, um, the support of the fighter. <laughs> and so I thought that that just like, that was, that, was, that was good when Sarah mentioned that to me. I'm like, yeah, I can totally see that.
1: But, but there's also it, yeah. some
2: ghost friending <laughs> as well.
0: So I don't know how that works. Ghost friending,
2: faster.
1: Ghost, ghost friending.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, complicated. it's a complicated mix, right? And that's, uh, that's what we love about your work that you can blend together these different ideas of um, not everyone is who, who they seem. And just because you are supposed to be known to be a certain way doesn't necessarily mean that that's really you are, or um, uh, you know who you are. Um, what was mm-hmm. interesting to you about sort of exploring those ideas? Because I feel like you've explored that kind of those sorts of concepts in and themes
0: in all of your books. Um, mm. Yeah, sword wielding librarians like people <laughs> yeah. aren't always as expected.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think I just I like characters who turn out not to be quite who you expect based on your initial impression of them. I just like like it when characters surprise me as a reader, so that's something that I like to write about as well. Um, I don't know if it's, I wish I had a, a more <laughs> sort of highbrow answer to this, but really I just find it compelling to write characters who 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 are surprising and not quite what they seem and perhaps a little bit grey in their morality, especially if they're inhuman characters. I also find that interesting to write. You know, how do you define a good character, a good person versus a bad person, particularly when they're sort of this entity who is not bound by the same rules of human morality? I find that to be interesting. It is
0: quite a challenge. You set yourself having one of the main characters of this book only really exist inside the protagonist's head. What aspect of that, like, was that difficult to, because you can't have any kind of physical description of how people are reacting. You, you just have a voice.
1: That was very difficult. I actually didn't think about that a whole lot. And then I started writing and I realized how much I rely on body language to convey character. And in the complete absence of body language, it was actually quite hard to write The Revenant, particularly because it's one of the two main characters, and one of the characters who is with Artemisia when she's on her own a great deal of the time. So it's just the two of them playing off of each other. So I did find that really challenging at first. Um, Yeah, I'm glad that you find that I pulled it off successfully, because that was a great challenge of the book. I think ultimately, the solution was just making The Revenant very talkative. Yes. (laughs) um it certainly has sort of an internal body language where um it still can affect artemisia physically in certain ways and i sort of use that as a substitute for body language i think but yeah not having facial expressions even though if the revenant did exist outside her body it still wouldn't have facial expressions however so that's worth noting but (laughs) (laughs)
0: particularly well done to have such a strong character come through and not be embodied at, ever, at any point during the story and I actually read the book twice Margot because I read the book oh. and I was like oh, gosh that was really good and then but that was a few weeks ago and then as we were approaching the podcast I often like flip through again just to remind myself of questions that I wanted to ask but I couldn't just flip through Vespertine, I fell right back into it and, and had a much more luxurious reread where I was able to really notice and marvel over things like that. Because it didn't strike me when I was reading it the first time how hard it must be to do that, but it's done so well.
1: I'm so glad you brought that up because I had forgotten completely about that.
2: <laughs> it's like so somehow I just... You, just, you just forget about the
1: hard things after, after they're done and you just go, oh, yeah. this is a beautiful result that I have here. <laughs> <laughs> it was also a COVID, it was a covid book so I just have um, sort of very strange memories of writing those parts right in the beginning of lockdown in the United States was when I was writing the first wow. part of the book. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, that would have been that would have been some sort of some sort of challenge. Had you done a lot of sort of research before because obviously we're in a fantasy world but I don't know, I felt when I was reading it that I was in a sort of a s- little bit like a version of a medieval, medieval France. That's kind of where my head was sort of thinking in terms of what I was picturing the world to look like. But do you do, and obviously in um, Sorcery of Thorns, you uh, it, it's more of an 18th century kind of, there's, te- there's technology in the world. So, you know, you set, you set books in different times. Um, do you do like a lot of research before you start about... Um, what kind of like reference points you want to have for the book, or do you kind of just start with the concept and then work back to sort of work out what time period would fit that best?
1: I would say concept first for sure. And then I will settle on a time period just based on what I feel would work for the story. I don't do a lot of research, but I do try to do enough that I can create a relatively authentic feeling sense of place. So what the characters are wearing and what they're eating and what kind of textiles they're using and that sort of thing. I like that sort of background information because it allows you to build a sense of time period and setting without really going yeah. to a lot of effort. You yes, can just sort of plant really that in the reader's mind. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. That is actually quite, is actually quite um, satisfying when you're just like, Oh, I think this must be kind of this sort of thing. Cause these sorts of things are happening. And then you're like, yes, she is that this this nun is wearing you know is wearing these kind of medieval kind of style um, you know clothes and the, the weapons and stuff it's just it's just it just adds such a layer of like of, of um, visual interest in your own mind when you're reading when you're reading a book when you can just oh, yeah. uh, have that world already um, just already open to you right from the beginning of the book rather than having to spend half of your brain power trying to work out
0: what what's I of love <laughs> Any kind of fantasy with any, a vaguely French Middle Ages feel like. Um, <laughs> mm. <laughs> I'm a big fan of the Robin Lefebvre's His Fair Assassins. Yes. Um, and, like, that whole vibe is just delicious to me. And I think adding in this uh, kind of spirit ghost world, that magic system basically that you created was just... I was in heaven. I loved it so much. Um And the first time I read it, I was under the impression it was a standalone novel. And I was perfectly satisfied with the book as the way it ends, like a little somewhat open but conclusion, right? Um, And then it wasn't until the second read that I had gained the information that this will be a duology. So that just made me so happy because now we get to um, meet Artemisia and the Revenant again. But from your point of view, as the writer of these books, this is the first one you've written where you've intended to continue. the series. Was that difficult for you? Or um, did you always know it would be a du- du- duology when you were writing it?
1: I did originally conceive of it as a series, just because I felt as though Artemisia's story had more to give than just one book. I was also really tired of creating worlds and then moving on from them after one book because after you spend that much time creating a world, it's very hard to just spend one book in that world and then just leave because yeah. you've done so much work and you, you just can't help but think, I could use this again. Um, yeah. So that, that was... No, I was, I was just saying, yes, I can totally imagine that if you spent all that
2: time and you basically, it's like, it's like creating a whole world but just living in one suburb. And, you know, yeah. and there's all these other suburbs that you haven't yet, like, visited. <laughs>
1: <And> That's exactly you.
0: <laughs> and
2: you're like, exactly. why, why, am I, why am I going to another country when I haven't even, like, explored this country that I'm in
0: right now? <laughs> hey, look, and I can relate as the reader. I never want to leave those worlds. Yeah. So. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: But we also nice. are very happy that you create different worlds because we, we've loved we've loved all of them. But, yeah, um, absolutely. I think we can see in Vespertine that she, she comes to uh, a point in the end of the book and, and there and that she's at a point in life, but that you can see that there is more to do. Um have you um is it definitely gonna just be a duology though? Is it two definitely two books? Or you're still I, or there's potential to expand? I don't, I I th- don't th- wait for the answer to this.
1: <laughs> I th- I don't know if this is something I can answer, unfortunately. And maybe top secret information. Just um, the fact that you can't easily answer yes it's only two is
0: enough for me. I
1: don't wanna I don't wanna raise your hopes too high it's mostly that i'm just not 100 sure yet Mm. so it'll that'll that sort of has to be something that i will figure out with my publisher so i can't definitively answer that currently hey i like Um,
0: that ambiguity i'm like i'm i'm all for a maybe possibly can't (laughs) say answer um you touched briefly on um that you wrote that the book is the darkest thing that you've written um, for anyone listening, though, I just want to say it's not, like, oppressively dark. It's just a little bit, goes to uh, some little bit darker places than your previous books and that you wrote it in in lockdown. Um, could you expand on that experience a little bit um, and, how, and how that came about and maybe is the book the way you intended it to be? Were it not for lockdown or did it kind of end up a bit different?
1: I... I do think that it would have been a bit of a different book had I not written it under lockdown. um, It's funny because you would imagine that with lockdown, authors would suddenly be writing all the time and have a lot more time to write because we'd be stuck inside all, all, all day long. I did not find that to be the case because I realized that so much of my ability to write comes from observing people and being with people and refilling my creative well by going out and doing things. So this was by far the hardest book to write that I've ever tried to write. it was it was really, really hard. I had to rewrite some of the scenes 12 plus times before they would even start to read like they had written been written by a human being instead of a depressed artificial intelligence <laughs> because I just couldn't remember it, you know what do people say when they talk to each other? what do their faces look like when they're talking to each other um, it was just very it was a bizarre experience and yeah. it was very hard <laughs> that sounds like artemisia that, sounds so, yeah. like,
0: that, that puts her in a framework that and um, i kind of understand a lot more how you might write a character like artemisia yeah, was, while in that frame of mind
1: that was it's so interesting because she that part of her character was in place before i before lockdown and before covid but I certainly do think that lockdown shaped her to, to an extent because how could it not, you know? I can't imagine that I could have written a book under those circumstances and not had them affect the book in some way. So I do think that, yeah, that did <laughs> that did rub off on Artemisia quite a bit for Artemisia. Oh, I, love,
0: I love her so much, though. It's wonderful to be in her head. I totally understand why the revenant, wants to stay there. It seems like like a really great place to be. She's incredibly strong. Um, She has a a kind of unique outlook Um, and also outside of, like, we're in her first person and the way she describes her own actions sometimes, like, had me, this is, we're bringing it back to the humour. The humour in your book is so gentle. Like, I feel like, it's such a, a gentle, subtle little vein of humour um, that sometimes just comes down to a single word choice. Like you might have a character inspecting some hats, for example, and throwing the adjective funerally. And that just throws, it just makes me laugh out loud. Um, this isn't a question. This is just me saying things that I like about the book. I realised that halfway
2: through. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do have a I am also really interested in the fact that each each book that you have that you have written, the main characters um, are parentless. They're uh, for various various different um, various different reasons. Um, is there something particularly um, like what is it particularly that appeals to you about writing these kind of orphan main characters? Is it because that they're all of their normal support structure that you'd expect to have has been stripped away, so you get to build because they seem to build their own their own families or their own, um, you know, their own relationships on their own terms with the people in their lives, rather than this like normal familial structure.
1: I think that is twofold or maybe threefold. It is that I really like the found family trope. I also find that it is just easier to write a character who doesn't have those parental attachments because then there's no one who is stopping them from doing things. Um, I will say I think Artemisia is the, is the first in the sense that she has a family and every member of her family is alive. She's yeah. just parted from them yeah. um, because she was taken to the convent. Um, yes, and 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 they may have a, a future appearance. So. Oh my
0: god! <laughs> a first for me, actual <laughs>
1: actual living living parents. <laughs> <and relatives. laughs> speaking of the found
2: family the the other the other characters that we that we get to um that we get to meet and kind of really fall in love with were um like marguerite what a what a great character like you really think she's one one particular way and uh you know what she's like and then she turns into like you said you love writing this kind of um characters that are not you know not what they seem but i feel like that's a really great metaphor for like you know, particularly if they're teenagers, like, you know, young t- younger teenagers reading this book who absolutely can because it's, you know, perfectly, you know, as I said, it's dark, but it's not inappropriate for, for kids, but such a great way of like sort of not, you don't want to ever teach people things in your books, but to show people that maybe you don't judge people by how you're, you're feeling about something at the time, you know, other, every person has their own experience and why they're, why they're behaving some, some sort of way. Um, is that something you think about when you're writing or is it just, you just, it just happens to kind of come out and that's how you like to write. So that's the outcome. So that's a bit of a convoluted question there. Probably
1: a common, <laughs> I think it's a combination. No, that's a great question. I think it's a combination of the two where it's just something I like to write about. And then also something that I specifically set out to write about with, I, I really find female friendships to be important in books. I love reading about friendships. And I think with Marguerite and Artemisia, there's such opposites. Yes. I don't want to spoil too much for the reader because no. No, no. it is kind of an interesting. Um, but I think at that age, so much of, of what you think about other young people is sort of a misunderstanding or like a surface level image that you have of another person. And I just find it interesting to sort of strip that away and put characters in situations where they have no choice to be honest with each other and sort of realize that they actually can be good friends. I think that Marguerite and Artemisia are hilarious because they remind me sort of of the goth girl who's friends with like the preppiest girl (laughs) at the high school. I just really love their dynamic. I think it's so so fun. (laughs) They did have a
0: great dynamic, and the book is actually full of so many different relationships that I guess that you could describe as, um, like, reluctant friendships or, like, I don't know how to to put it into words, but people who, I I guess I'll I'll phrase it like this. Artemisia goes through several times um, this realisation that, not only what she thinks of someone else, but the way she imagines they view her are just not, not what she thinks. Yeah, um, think and
2: my favourite description is when um, there's been a, you know uh, an incident and then uh, people are talking about her afterwards and someone says, you know, oh, I, I, I saw her. And, and she says, oh, you did? Um, how did she look? And, and, she, and the person's like, oh, <laughs> beautiful. And she's like, well, that wasn't me then. <laughs> like, she just... <laughs>
0: It <laughs> was a great moment, I loved that moment.
2: She literally just dismisses, just dismisses it, but not in, a, not, in a, not in a self-pitying way, but just in this like idea of, well, no, that can't be me because I have this... Artemisia like,
0: doesn't <laughs> have a self-pitying bone in her body, I don't think she's
2: like... <laughs> of, of, of who she is and, and what, you know, what how she presents to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, she still has the, but she still ends up with misunderstandings throughout the book, so I think that's, like, <laughs> that's great. I think we can all relate uh, to that experience. <laughs>
0: Um, I certainly, I, I know I certainly can. <laughs> I want to get superficial and um, and talk about the look of the book because, oh my God, the covers of all of your books, with um, the beautiful Charlie Bowalter um, artwork, are like just make them not only enchanting to read but just stunning to behold. This one in particular is jaw dropping. Can you just tell us a little bit about? Um, how the covers came to be and, and, and how you came to
1: work with Charlie? Oh my gosh. Um, every time I see a cover for one of my books for the first time, I cry, basically. I just, it is, it is such a privilege to have such beautiful covers. I remember with my first book, in Enchantment of Ravens, I did not know anything about what the cover was going to look like or who was working on it. I was hoping that it would be illustrated, but I did not know for sure whether that was going to happen or not. And then one day I just got an email in my inbox that was, Hey Margaret, here's the cover for your book. Oh, wow. (laughs) And it was one of the coolest things that has ever happened to me. It was just amazing. And um, I'm I'm not really involved in the creation of my covers really at all um i think for Vespertine i had more input because we were on such a tight schedule they were actually making the cover when i was only like a third of the way through writing the book so make- <laughs> yes it was a, another covid related delay but um yeah so i did i did get to provide some imagery like here here are some things that you may want to put on the cover and they actually ended up using a lot of that which was f- really cool because Prior to that, I've I've not really had an involvement in in the cover process, but for good reason because Charlie and and Sonia, who's the art director, just do such a fantastic job, such a good job. I I'm almost glad that I'm not involved with it in any way because when it happens, it's such a wonderful surprise. <laughs> it's just it's fantastic. Just oh.
2: Oh, that's so great. That's like a serendipity um, thing, because that doesn't always happen, you know, it doesn't, not everyone is always very as happy, you know, or that's not the direction they think that the publisher should go down. So it's, it's really great to hear that even though you were not, you know, you're not directing them to what you want, that they've somehow managed to pick up the same things maybe we did with the feels they're doing with the visuals um, from reading your book and being able to bring that um, idea of what you have for this book to life on the covers. Um, so that's very, very exciting. And very exciting that people are going to have to make a bit more space on their shelf
0: for <laughs> books from you. Definitely. Um, keepsake, keepsake items, your books, exactly. um, for multiple reasons. I think I'm obviously a big believer in the whole not judging a book by its cover, but I'm also I'm a bookseller and understand that the cover <laughs> is the best advertisement you will have for the book. And so I, I think I'm just—I'm so pleased that your stories, that are so rich and beautiful and sort of poetic and lyrical, have these covers that completely match um, the vibe you're going to get in the book. Yes, and look—we're very, 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 very happy that these are the books that you are writing. But
2: one thing I'm always interested about is what draws people into writing—you know, what they what they do write. So, what was it about the kind of um, Fantasy, uh, YA fantasy genre that you just made you decide that that's the kinds of books, or so far, you know, you could do whatever you like in the future, but so far, that's what you <laughs> wanted to write versus a contemporary YA or writing for preschools or writing for, you know, particularly aimed at adults. What was the, the kind of driving force behind that?
1: Absolutely, because I think while reading has been important to me at every stage in my life, as a teenager, I really needed books the most, particularly the escapism of fantasy. That's when books just provided that necessary solace for me. And I just really felt as though having had such strong feelings associated with the books that I read as a teen and the ways that they shaped my imagination growing up, I just really wanted to write for that age group. And, um, Sort of provide that fantasy escapism for young people who might really need it, as I really needed it at that age. Ah, that's, wow, that's so well. <laughs> and what
2: were some of those influences? What were some of the things that you were enjoyed reading when you were when you were younger? <laughs> so oh, many things
1: when you were a teen. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh, so many things. Um, I loved Robin McKinley was a huge oh, influence on yeah. me. Yeah, makes so much sense. <laughs> <laughs> Robin McKinley and Diana Wynne Jones, I think, oh, were my oh big my two. Yes, yeah. <laughs> House Moving Castle, one of the best yes. books ever written.
0: <laughs> I'm dying. <laughs> uh, no wonder I, I love been. your book so much. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel there are fairly obvious House Moving Castle influences in pretty much everything that I write. Um,
2: yes, in that in that humour that like Sophie has when she's dealing with the
0: recalcitrant uh, house and the <laughs> and, all and the also cal- these larger than life, <laughs> somewhat eccentric but super powerful um, yeah. characters, they're very how like. <laughs> oh, I love it. You're like listing those are the books that went into my id when I was like a child, and I think have informed so much of what I seek out in stories as an adult. So. It makes perfect sense to me now um that i, I put your books in those categories like i would put those books alongside each other on the shelf we'll have <laughs> your three next to how's moving castle next to beauty next
1: to
0: um all of those books that yes, are just like gorgeous
1: highest highest possible compliment <laughs> <laughs> I haven't. Like,
0: look, I mean, I love books for all sorts of reasons, but there's really something about those books that tap into that that particular vein of, like, lush, lyrical, fantasy YA um, that really, really uh, appeal to me. Um, another author who I think does it is Meg Spooner. Um, I, I sort of – she she doesn't – she has less magic, but she has – something in her books that um i feel tap into that same vein and it's really rare so you know when i do find it i just lavish praise where i feel praise (laughs) is due but we are kind of running out of time (laughs) so we've had a few warnings so um i feel like we may need to start wrapping it up but margaret thank you so so much for your time today and for speaking to us Um, all the way from the other side of the world.
1: Thank you for having me. This was really wonderful. I'm so honoured to be here.
0: And um, for everyone listening, you can get your copy of Vespertine as well as Margaret Rogerson's backlist titles, Enchantment of Ravens and Sorcery of Thorns, all of which are highly recommended by myself and Chanu, and, and you'll find most people who've read them. Um, online at Booktopia or at your local bookstore. Thanks for listening and never stop reading. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free